I invite you to open in the Scriptures to Hebrews chapter 11 this morning. Hebrews 11. I didn't start off intending for this week to be about missions or about giving, as our last couple of weeks have been, of course, leading up to this Mission Giving Commitment Sunday. Um, I was intending, actually, to go back to the book of Matthew, and uh, I've learned so much there and excited to share with you. Uh, But this passage has been just in my mind and my heart and It's been ministering to me, I guess, and uh, challenging me, and I felt so much that it's the kind of thing that we all need, and so I'm just going to go to it uh, this Lord's Day, Uh, Hebrews chapter 11. And and, and even as I was thinking of it, though, I I did come to think that there is an application with regard to financial sacrifice for the cause of Christ. And it actually, you see it in the chapter right before this, in Hebrews 10. Just take a look at it for a minute. Um, Remember that the book of Hebrews is written to Christians, primarily probably Jewish Christians, but it's written to believers um, to encourage them to be bold in their um, commitment to Jesus Christ and not to pull back from that in the face of a lot of pressure that they're facing, even persecution in some ways from the, from the unbelieving Jews, the ones who rejected Jesus. And they're facing all kinds of temptations in the world to turn away from Christ and to go after sin in various forms. And he's writing this to encourage them to persevere in their faith, of course. And here's what he says to them in verse 32 of chapter 10. He says, I want you to recall, to remember those former days, the early days of your faith, when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those who were in prison. And look at this. And you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. (laughs) Think about that for a minute. Have you ever joyfully accepted the plundering of your property for the sake of Christ? He says, remember how when you were first saved, you joyfully accepted even the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Now granted, we are not uh, having our our property plundered by force, but rather we're being called on to give of our material possessions willingly for the cause of the gospel. That is something supernatural just as much as these people who were joyful when their possessions were plundered. Are you willing to willfully plunder your bank account for the sake of the mission of Jesus Christ around the world. What would make someone willing to leave one of the richest and freest of countries in all the world to go live somewhere else for the cause of Jesus Christ? What, What would cause people to give, to spend, and to be spent for this mission? Well, 
The answer in a word is faith. And he alludes to it here in chapter 10, but he really enlarges on it in chapter 11. And that's going to be our focus today. The Bible says, the just shall, you say it with me, live by faith. That's right. The just will live by faith. Without faith, it is what? Impossible to please God. That's right. Chapter 10, verse 38, says, My righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. I has no pleasure in him. But then he says this. He's confident, he's assured, he's hopeful that those he's writing to are not those who will shrink back, he says, and be destroyed, but those who have faith and preserve their souls. He is writing to people who are in danger, as, as every professing Christian is, in danger of abandoning his faith, even while he's hopeful that that's not the case for the people that he's writing to. Nevertheless, though, though he is hopeful, though he believes that they are truly the Lord's, he is nevertheless warning them because there is a possibility of the tempter coming in and getting a hold of someone who is deceived, who is merely a confessor, and he becomes his unbelief becomes apparent. It becomes manifest. And throughout the book of Hebrews, he's warning us against that, that we would persevere in faith. If you're going to be, if you're going to be, um, if you are, if you're justified, you live by faith. And if you don't live by faith, that becomes an evidence that you may not be what? You may not be justified. And so be careful about that, brothers. What he's saying in here is a, is a warning to all of us not to rest presumptuously, but to rest truly in Jesus Christ. He is warning that a lack of faith can be manifest in the lives of people who even claim that they belong to the Lord. And their lack of faith is manifested in one of two ways. And this is all kind of by way of introduction here. Their lack of faith, he says throughout the book of Hebrews, is going to be manifested in one of two ways. One, through a bitterness against the Lord. In Hebrews chapter 12, you don't have to look at it yet, but he talks about a root of bitterness causing some of those people that he was writing to, or his fear was that a root of bitterness may cause some of them to fail, listen to this, to fail to obtain the grace of God. And by that, they would not see the Lord. And the allusion here is to the Old Testament, to the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 29, and the Lord brought His people out of Egypt and into the wilderness. And Moses was speaking now, to that generation of Israelites, he was speaking to them about the failure of faith of many of their fathers, their forefathers, who proved not to be true believers. They failed to make it into the land of rest, which for us is a picture of coming into our eternal rest. They failed to make it into the land of rest 
They were tempted and tested in the wilderness, and a root of unbelief took hold that grew into bitterness, a bitter fruit against God. And we've probably all known people who have grown bitter against God. They, 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 at one point, you probably know people who claim to be a Christian, and at some point, God let something happen in their life, and they just decided... They could not believe in a God like that anymore, and they turned their back against God. He's warning the Hebrews, guard your heart that no one would be an unbeliever. Keep believing in Christ in spite of all of the persecution and the pressure that God is allowing in your life. Don't let that turn you away from Jesus. And I would say the same thing to you guys today. Don't let your afflictions cause you to become embittered against God and so manifest a heart of unbelief. Keep believing in the Lord. There's a second way that unbelief is manifested throughout the book of Hebrews, and that is not through bitterness, but through apathy. And this is particularly apathy with regard to temptation and sin. He is warning these people that they should never come to a place where they don't care about their sin anymore. It's just who I am. It's the way I'm going to be. It's the way I'm going to live. So he tells them in chapter 3, he warns them against, quote, listen to this. Listen to the way he says it. I know I've said it to you many times. He warns them against becoming hardened by the deceitfulness of sin and manifesting, quote, an evil heart of, of what? Of unbelief, right. It's, it's not that, it's not that he's saying you have to stop sinning in order to be justified and so God will let you into heaven. He's saying that your apathy or the, the, the potential of apathy towards sin is a manifestation of an unbelieving heart. And that's what's going to keep you from heaven. We're always and only justified by faith, but that faith is manifest in a constant fighting against sin. I don't ever grow apathetic. So those are the ways in which unbelief may be manifest. Bitterness at the sufferings that we face or apathy to our sin. And the result in either case is that these people will leave the believing Christian community, or they're in danger of that, of leaving the believing Christian community and going back to their unbelieving old life in the, in the unbelieving Jewish community in which they were, from which they were saved. And his word to them is, brothers and sisters, persevere in faith. Keep believing. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Keep holding on to his promises. Keep believing what he says. And Hebrews 11 then comes in at this point and helps us understand what that faith is, what faith looks like, what it, what it looks like in real life, how it works, and how we can cultivate it. And so for good reason, this has been called the faith chapter, or the Hall of Christian Faith, and uh, we're going to read it together. All right, Hebrews 11. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. 
By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken up, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned of God concerning events as yet unseen in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. And by this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose builder, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah, when herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of the heaven, as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. All these died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles in the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. But if they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared for them a city. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and that they were not afraid of the king's verdict. edict. Verse 24, by faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover 
and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. And what more shall I say? For time would fail to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, and Samuel and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms and forced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign enemies to flight. Women received their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and on mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised since God has provided, had provided something better for us that apart from them, they should not be made perfect. This chapter begins with a description of faith. You see in the very first verse, right? Faith is the assurance or substance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. So we see in this that faith manifests itself in two spheres or in two areas, right? In the future and in that which is not visible to human eyes. Isn't that what the text says? It reveals itself in the realm where God's promises are not yet fulfilled and in the realm where the divinely revealed realities are unable to be seen with human eyes. It holds on to, faith holds on to realities which are still future to us in our experience. Can I say that again? Faith holds on to present realities that are still future for us in our experience. We can't yet see it. So Paul says in Romans that hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with endurance, with perseverance, with patience. That's what faith does. Waiting to see is the way that faith is put to the test. I say that again? Faith is put to the test when we wait on God to see. We say to ourselves, how long do I have to wait? When will by faith be made sight? And sometimes God deals with us like He did with Abraham and His only son Isaac. And the knife is lifted already to plunge before God says, stop. Until we prove that we have really trusted Him. 
Remember that Abraham in the very beginning expressed his faith by saying, when his son asked him where the sacrifice was, what did he say? God will provide. And when the time came, what happened? The Bible literally says it like this. Abraham is ready to plunge the knife. God stops him. And it says, and Abraham looked and behold, there was the sacrifice. He sees. But he lives for a while believing what he can't see yet. That's what he means when it says he did it by faith. Sometimes, though, that means that we wait all our earthly lives for the ultimate fulfillment of all of God's promises. You see it in the text. I mean, it's very clear here. Look at verse 13. All these all these patriarchs of the faith did what? Verse 13, the beginning of the verse, all they died in faith. They lived by faith, and they lived all the way until they were dead by faith, believing in God's promises. And verse 39 says, though they were commended through their faith, they never received what was promised. Because the promise was awaiting its real fulfillment in Christ. And they lived before Christ. So they were waiting for these promises, but they never wavered until death. And that's why they're held up as examples of faith. Faith holds on to divinely revealed realities which now seem far off and very intangible. And faith lives on the basis of those realities. It lives by every word from God. If that's all it has is the bare word of God, faith lives by that rather than by what it can see. And it perseveres even to death, holding on to God. Now, Hebrews 5 unfolds and unpacks so beautifully what faith looks like in kind of Christian's everyday experience. And he, he goes to a lot of different experiences. Isn't that interesting? You know, Christians manifest their faith in, you know, in their own particular circumstances. I, I, I have to act on my faith and live in a way that's consistent with my faith. And for me, it means doing this and not doing that. For you, it's going to mean something a little different, just like there's so many different kinds of responses that flow from faith in Hebrews 11. But what, what is common are five threads that I want you to see in this passage. Five commonalities, five common threads that show us how faith operates. Five basic activities of faith. Number one is that faith thinks. Say it again. Faith, you say it. Faith what? Okay, just want to make sure you're still there. Faith thinks. Thinks, not stinks. Faith thinks. It thinks in a particular way. Faith thinks. You see that in several places, but particularly I want to draw your attention to 15 and 16. Take a look at the Bible, Bible's text again. He says, if they, talking about the patriarchs, if they had been thinking about that land from which they had gone out, that is the land of Ur, 
If they'd been thinking about that old land, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they, they desire a better country. That is the land that God had promised to them. Faith thinks, and sometimes it doesn't think. You see what it said? It said they didn't think about the old land. They did think, and they set their desire on the new. Faith intentionally thinks a certain way. This is so huge. This is so much a part of the Christian life. And what it, when it says they did not think, um, they were not thinking of their homeland, the word means to remember it or to call it to mind. Not saying that they somehow forgot, you know, just magically their memory was erased about their old life, but they didn't set their mind on it. They didn't intentionally go back and and replay all of the all of the wonders of that old land. Their minds were set on the land of promise. They might have had opportunity to think about what they left behind. They might have had opportunity to think about their family. Their family that they left behind, Abraham, all of his kin. You know, we're so mobile today. We all live in Houston and we're all from somewhere else. But, you know, most of the history of the world, people have lived where they've always lived. And, you know, you've got your uncles and aunts and your grandparents and your great-grandparents and all your cousins and nephews, and it's just it's family. It's, it's everything you've known. It's your culture. And he left all that. But rather than thinking about that, he set his mind on what God had promised. His own father came partway with him and then stopped, and he pressed on to the land that God had instructed him to go to. He could have had opportunity to think about the job that he left, the, the occupation that he had, his status in the society, his home, his property, his opportunities that he had back in the land of his birth, but rather he believed the promise of God, which was later echoed by Jesus himself when he said, if you've left houses or lands or father or mother, any of these things, you'll gain more. And he just believed that. He set his he set he intentionally chose to think about the promises of God. Somebody told me a long time ago that one of the things that Christians need to do is to take the truth that they know and to rehearse it in their minds. And that is exactly the way that our faith is strengthened and our lives transformed is to take the truth that you know from the Bible and to continue to replay that truth, to focus on, to intentionally set your mind on that truth and choose to think about what is right. The Scripture tells us whatever things are true, think on these things. Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. Every one of us engages in a sort of an internal mental dialogue with ourselves as we process our way through our days and we're thinking about uh, the, the world outside of us, but inside our minds, and it's that inside our minds part that is so critical and so crucial. Rather than letting the circumstances of the world dictate how we think, we, people of faith, choose how they will think and, and then make their choices in the world based on what God has revealed. Martin Lloyd-Jones, London preacher of years ago, said it this way, faith is primarily thinking. 
And the whole trouble with the man of little faith is that he does not think. He allows his circumstances to bludgeon him. That is the real difficulty in life. Life comes to us with a club in its hand and it strikes us upon the head and we become incapable of thought, helpless and defeated. The way to avoid that is to think. The Bible is full of logic and we must never think of faith as something purely mystical. We do not just sit down in an armchair and expect marvelous things to happen to us. That is not Christian faith. The Christian faith is essentially thinking. And he makes reference to Jesus' appeals to his disciples, to their thinking in Matthew chapter 6. And he says, look at the birds, think about them and draw your deductions, how God takes care of the birds, right? Look at the grass and the lilies of the field, consider them. The trouble with most people, he says, is that they will not think. Instead of doing this, they sit down and they ask, what is going to happen to me? What can I do? This is the absence of thought. It is surrender. It is defeat. Our Lord here is urging us to think and to think in a Christian manner. That is the very essence of faith. Faith, if you like, he says, can be defined like this. It is a man insisting upon thinking when everything seems to be determined to bludgeon and knock him down in an intellectual sense. The trouble with the person of little faith is that instead of controlling his own thought, his thought is being controlled by something else. And as we put it, he goes round and round in circles. That is the essence of worry. That is not thought. That is the absence of thought, a failure to think. Here's what, here's what the, the writer of Hebrews says. These people were, their faith was manifested in that they chose to set their minds on God's word. They could have had opportunities to think in other ways. And just like them, every one of you do. Every one of you faces opportunities all day long, every day, to think, to sort of fall back into a kind of thinking that is not robustly biblical. And what he's saying is that faith recognizes that, repents of that, and lays hold again on God's revelation and sets it before their face, and they think that way. And that's just what they do. Faith thinks. Number one. Number two, we see in this text that faith evaluates in unexpected ways. Faith evaluates. In other words, faith is not blind to reality. Some people think of faith that way, right? Here's everything going badly and this person is just oblivious and so he's a person of faith. (laughs) That's not Bible faith. Faith is not just kind of being oblivious to reality. Faith is carefully calculating. Faith evaluates things. Faith counts the cost. Faith adds up the pluses and the minuses. Faith is not foolishness. And you see that all through this text. This is exactly what people are doing. People are evaluating. But their evaluations, okay, now listen, their evaluations are taking into account data that most people don't take into account. And that's why they come to a different conclusion on the bottom line than most of the people out there in the world. 
Notice in verse 11, you see an example of this. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past age, since she what? Okay, now that's a key word. Since she considered him who had promised to be faithful. She considered her circumstances and she considered God. She, you know, if you were kind of adding up your your deficits and your what is the opposite of that? <laughs> your 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 positives on the other side, uh, the grappling for the right word. She did that. Okay? Or look at verse number 17. By faith Abraham when he was tested offered up Isaac received uh, the promises Uh, He who had received the promises was in the act of offering his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was even able to raise him from the dead, which figuratively speaking, he did. Or look at verse 24. By faith, Moses, when he was grown, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing to be rather mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth, you have a clear accounting here, right? He considered the the reproaches of Christ to be greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. You see God's people over and over and over again, people of faith, considering, calculating, evaluating their life. And the word translated considered here, one of the major uses of that term comes from the field of accounting. Some of you are accountants or you've done some accounting, and if you haven't done any public accounting, you've done you know, private toting up your checkbook and figuring out your, you know, your assets and your liabilities. There's the word, right? So, and you've, you've, you've tried to make ends meet. We've all made calculations and worked out ledgers and added up figures. Ten times this word is translated to count. To consider is to count, to total up. It's a decision based on an examination of all the facts and the calculations. We say about somebody, he made a calculated decision. That's exactly what he's saying that these people did. Faith is not just going the opposite way of what makes sense. Don't think that that's faith. Faith is looking at what makes sense and doing it. But it's, what, it's looking at what makes sense with all of the data that God has revealed. And that's what makes their calculations unique. So, for example, think about Moses. He says, Moses here, considered. On the one hand, the great wealth of the palace of Egypt, and on the other hand, the reproach of Jesus Christ. But he saw it wasn't just wealth and reproach, right? He saw that it was the wealth of a temporary, human, sinful, anti-God power and the reproach of the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the one who was worth every amount of honor and glory and blessing that he could possibly, the one who who controlled everything in, in the palm of his hands. He looked at the pleasures of the king's palace as something that was fleeting just for a moment, and the glories of Jesus Christ as something that was far weightier than it. In other words, he had, he had eyes to see parts of that data that other people didn't consider. And when he did that, the decision was clear. What fool would give up greater glory 
to get something that was only temporary. Don't look at Moses and say, wow, he really went against all intuition. No, he did what made sense. But what made sense to eyes of faith. And that's exactly what you and I ought to do. I'm telling you. Don't live your life as a fool. Live it as a person who's wise. Behind Moses' choosing in verse 25, notice his choice there, but behind his choosing in verse 25 was his considering in verse 26. And behind every choice that you'll ever make is right thinking. And by the way, behind every wrong choice that we'll ever make is a pattern of wrong thinking that's usually not intentionally chosen, but a kind of wrong pattern of thinking that we slip back into because we are not being intentional in calculating things according to what God has revealed. Or consider Sarah. She's calculating, right? She looks at, she's totaling up the assets and the, and the liabilities on the one hand. She's got an older body past her childbearing years. It is very improbable, nay, likely impossible that she is able to have a child. That's the liabilities. But then on the other side, she considers that God is able to do anything. By the way, her faith wasn't perfect, was it? Seemed kind of like she stumbled a little there at the beginning. But God, God in His mercy brings us through even those stumbles to confess a, a real faith in Christ. And that's where, according to the New Testament, that's where she, she ended up. Or consider Abraham. Abraham is not just foolishly choosing. He is carefully evaluating. On the one hand, I mean, when he's getting ready to kill Isaac, right? On the one hand, he's got Isaac and his only son whom he loves, and he's about to lose him. And in, in to exacer, exacerbate the negatives, he also knows Isaac is the promised son. So now all the promises of God are on the line. So what does he do? How does he make this choice to go ahead and go through with it? He sits there and does a mental calculation. We're told about this. What was, what was going on in his brain? What was he thinking about while he was going through with this? Well, we don't know everything that was going on in his mind, but we know this. He started thinking things like this. Well, I don't know what God's intending to do. I don't understand this, but I know God is even able to raise people from the dead if he wants to. So if, 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 if it comes to that, you know, I just know he's going to be faith. God is always faithful to his promises. He is the God of the heavens. He's the God of all the universe. If I have him on my positives, everything else on my negatives is, is nothing in comparison. Does that make sense? That's what he's doing. He is going through, and that is exactly what you and I ought to do, to go through those kinds of calculations. We can, you can see these people's internal dialogue. They're weighing their options. We all make calculations in life, right? Jesus said, who goes to war except he calculates whether he's going to have enough strength? Who builds a tower before he tots up his figures and decides whether he's going to have enough to finish the project? When you go and you get $50 that you can spend on, on something, you have to decide whether a new pair of shoes or a, a nice meal out is more important to you. And you kind of sort of weigh the pros and the cons and the needs and all of that. We all do these sort of mental calculations all the time. 
And what he's saying is, we need to learn to make those evaluations out of a belief in what God said, that what God says is so. That, that will make our decisions sometimes seem foolish. But in reality, to those who see, they're, they're not foolish at all. They're the smartest thing to do. Like a banker compares his assets Sometimes things are not what they appear to be on the surface. You all remember very clearly, not too many years ago, the big housing bubble that burst and threatened to destroy the American economy and, 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 and the rest of the world and, and took, take down some major banks along with it because people, people thought that certain um, products were worth more than they really were. When you really evaluate it, you begin to realize they're not. Sometimes things are not worth what we think they are. And sometimes it's the exact opposite. Sometimes things are much more valuable than we ever knew. Well, I've always loved watching uh, little snippets of Antiques Roadshow and find somebody who had something sitting in their attic collecting dust or they bought it at a garage or something for $20 and they take it in and it's worth $2,370, whatever dollar, and they're just, wow, this was sitting on my shelf the whole time just collecting dust or up in my attic. And that's true for us. You know, there are things that people, that we all will tend to value beyond what they're really worth. And things that we will tend to undervalue and underappreciate compared to what they're really worth. And what he's saying is that these people, they evaluated their choices on the basis of what God had said. Moses recognized that the treasures of Egypt were nothing in comparison with the reproach of Christ. And like a financial analyst who digs a little bit deeper, he came to a decision, a wise decision, based on a unique calculation that brings every part of the data into the decision. When a person makes a bad business deal, it's usually because he's valuing something improperly. Right? He's valuing the cost of his goods or the, the, some aspect of the transaction in, in a way that is, uh, is faulty. And, and the same thing happens when we sin. It's because we're not recognizing God's inherent value. We're valuing something more than Him. We're looking to a relationship. Hear me now. We're looking to a relationship or to a possession or to an attainment or an experience to do for us what only God can do for us. And he's telling you here to stop and consider, to count the cost, to remind yourselves of the worth and the value and the desirability of God. There are calculations of faith that stand in great contrast to the evaluations of the world. The world looks at an experience that they're undergoing and they say, I don't deserve this. And a Christian's calculation is very different. He says, you know, I recognize what I really deserve. And it doesn't mitigate the difficulty of the situation, but it sets everything in a right perspective. Or the world will say, I'm not going to do this or that, even though, I you know, 
God says to you. I'm not going to do it because it just doesn't work. You ever had anybody say that? Or are you tempted to think that about the Bible? The Bible says this, but it doesn't work. Now, you don't have to raise your hand, but raise your hand in your heart. You have said that, okay? I know the Bible says it, but it just doesn't work. I ask you, is that the way Christians make decisions? Is our ultimate criteria what seems to work or what God has said? Do we believe, are we, are we taking into account all of the data here? You know, um, the Lord told Isaiah, remember Isaiah the prophet, Isaiah chapter 6, this glorious vision that he has of the Lord high and lifted up. And God's, he says, here am I, send me. to, And God sends him to preach to the people of Israel. And, and God says, and by the way, they're not going to listen to you. And he says, well, how long do I have to keep preaching when they're not going to listen? And they're just, it's not going to work. And he says, you just keep preaching and preaching and preaching until I take them into captivity. That's your job. That's your calling. You would say, well, why bother then? Why preach if I know it's not going to work? But there, the, faith has a whole different calculus. In some ways, it makes decisions look foolish to the world, but only wise when we're considering everything that God has revealed. In that realm, it is the wisest thing we can... How could we do anything else different? To do anything different is foolish. We don't make our decisions the way the world does. Some, so, you know, the world looks at something and they say, you know what, the Bible says to do this, or you're living like that, and I tell you, it's just not worth it. It's not worth it. And we do things that the world, or, or don't do things, maybe, and the world says, you know, you're wasting your life. And we look at them and say, no, you don't understand, you're wasting your life. Because you don't, you're not taking into account all of the details here. You're just skimming the surface in your valuation. You've got to really plunge down to every bit of reality. And that means to take into account what God has said and then make my decisions. Faith evaluates, it calculates. It's not blind foolishness. And faith makes unexpected calculations in the eyes of the world because, thirdly, Faith envisions. It sees things that others do not see. Faith sees things that others do not see. What does faith see? What is faith looking at in terms of valuing and uh, making its decisions that the world doesn't see? Well, it sees things that are yet to come. Right? Verse 9, take a look at it again. Faith sees as if they are present realities what is still yet to come in our experience. By faith, Abraham left the land, uh, left, excuse me, went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs of the same promise. Why? Look at why. Verse 10. Oh, look at why. Because he was doing what? He was looking. He was looking. He was looking forward to the city that has foundations. Or look at verse 13. All of these fathers of the faith, they died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having what? They saw them. Did they see them or not? Well, no, they didn't see the fulfillment, but they did see them. That's the, that's the point. They, faith sees things that other people don't see. And what does faith see? For one, it sees 
future realities as, as if they are realities because God says that's what's gonna, what it's going to be. So they, they, they have, you know, sort of inside information upon which to make their decisions. They look, they see with eyes of faith future realities, and they see things that are invisible to human eyes, not humanly perceptible. Look at verses 26 again, 27. By faith, Moses considered the reproach of Christ greater than the wealth and treasures of Egypt. And I said that our evaluation is based on this kind of vision. And here's what the text says. He, he made this evaluation because he was looking to the reward. He had his eyes on something that the court of Egypt couldn't see. The court of Egypt looked out at these poor, benighted Israelites sitting in slavery, and they said, oh, what poor, miserable wretches. But he looked out at them in light of all of God's promises, and he saw something else. And I notice he goes on to say, by faith, verse 27, he left Egypt not being afraid of the anger of the king, whom everybody could see, but he endured as seeing what? Him who is invisible. He saw the king on his throne. And that put everything else into perspective. Because here is an earthly temporary king who can offer measly temporary pleasures. And here is the eternal king on his throne orchestrating all of human history. And he said, I know, it's, it's not a, it's not a toss up which way I'm going to go. That's what Christians do. They see things that are yet future and invisible to human eyes, and they make their decisions on those bases. We saw Moses' evaluation, and now we see his vision. He saw with eyes of faith the reward of Christ. One of the ancient writers said it this way, the reward that he had his eyes on is nothing less than God himself because man ought not to seek anything apart from God. Your greatest reward, what you ought to set your eyes on, is not some earthly thing that you long for, but ultimately on God Himself. That was Abraham's reward. So it says in Genesis 15, I, God says to him, I am your protector and your exceeding great reward. Abraham... Moses, excuse me, saw what the world cannot see, the beauties of the invisible God. Things are not always as they appear, are they? And things will not always be as they do appear to most people now. The Bible says, the Bible says in 1 John, you are God's children in all the glory that it means to be a child of God. You are God's children right now. But what you are has not yet appeared, it's not yet manifest, and yet it's a present reality. Things are not always what they appear, um, nor will they always be as they now appear to most people. Faith is the ability to see into the future, not just because I, I imagine a future, but because God has revealed a future. Faith is the ability to see into the future by taking these words at their face value and then, listen to me, and then making everyday decisions in light of the future. That's all faith is. Faith sees what is invisible 
and what is yet to come. Number four, faith speaks. Faith speaks. Faith speaks in ways that reflect a believer's peculiar mindset. I have to go quickly through these last two, but notice verse 13 says that they acknowledge, they confess, they verbally affirmed that they were strangers in the land, but they believed that God would bring them back and give them a land, a permanent home, a dwelling. And so they purchased a possession there and they said, verse 20, that they pronounced blessings uh, based on the what God had revealed. Verse 21, Joseph uh, made mention of the Exodus, which was yet to come. He said, when I die, take my bones into the land of Canaan. Why? Because he believed that's where Israel was going to end up. Even though they were still slaves, there was no hint of getting out of slavery when Joseph said that. But he said it by faith. And and here's the point. These people spoke. They all spoke. They spoke. They spoke out of faith. Faith speaks. Faith speaks about things in a way that reveals its confidence in God and all that God has said. And it is important, friends, to speak words of faith to ourselves and to others and to remind them of the truth that they know. And, And brothers and sisters, listen. There are times when in our lives, we, well, we are all so weary that we can barely see the truth ourselves. And that what we really need is a brother or sister to come along and speak some truth to us again. To verbalize with confidence in all that God has said. And somehow it has a way of sustaining us. And I say in my own heart, yeah, that's right. That's right. Amen. One of the reasons you come and listen to sermons every week. You know these things are true. But the Lord uses us to speak them to each other. And to a lost and dying world who needs to hear them. A world that's blinded to these glorious truths. We speak them. We speak them so that God may be glorified in the world. And finally, we see here that faith acts. Faith acts. It acts in a way that, listen to me, it acts in a way that corresponds with what it thinks and considers and sees and says. James says, you can say you trust Christ. Where's the proof? Faith is the basis on which we are justified. Make no mistake. Faith alone. Christ alone. But faith is proven, faith is displayed when it's tested at a specific point of action. And we live and we decide by faith. And this, these actions can seem very unspiritual sometimes. But if it's an act that is inspired by what God says, it is every bit as spiritual as getting up here and preaching a sermon. By faith, Abraham built a boat. Now, I like to work with my hands. I like to build things out of, out of wood. Not very good at it, but I like it. But building something doesn't seem like really too spiritual exactly to most people. What I'm saying is this. Every part of your life, every aspect, the way you use your money becomes an act of faith. A test of what you believe and what you see as important and the way you're evaluating the world and 
and, 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 and the way you're, you're listening to the Word of God and receiving it or, or, or challenging it. The way that you, where you choose to live, what kind of house you live in, um, the way you operate your family, every, uh, uh, the, the, the way you plow your, uh, plow up your garden in your backyard, the way that you eat or drink or do anything, in some way is connected to what you think about the grand scheme of things. And so what he's saying is here, here is, your faith will be manifested by the choices that you make. And it's been true for all these people. All the people he mentioned. Their choices manifested that they trusted God. And they trusted God's promises. And so will ours. Our faith, our, our choices will be manifested in what we do. So brothers and sisters, speak words of faith to your own heart. Don't listen to your heart, speak to your heart. Calculate the benefits of living according to God's Word. Go ahead and put that up against all of the other benefits that this world offers. Go ahead. See Him who is invisible. Confess your faith to one another and to the world and act in keeping with all of that. For without faith, it is what? It is impossible to please Him. Heavenly Father, please strengthen our faith. We, hearing these things, we're convicted of places where we have made decisions that have not seemed to reflect very much faith. And looking back on those decisions now and those directions of our lives, we are ashamed of them because deep down we want to tell you that we really do trust you. We really believe you. Our hope really is in Christ. We believe that He's worth giving up anything. But Lord, we long for our experience to reflect that more fully. We want to be of one mind about you. Please forgive our double-mindedness. Strengthen our faith. Lord, for those here who are really wavering in their faith in some particular area, strengthen them, Lord, to believe and to act on what they know to be true, I pray in Jesus' name.